Good morning. Welcome to our next week of being scattered together. Thanks for gathering in this way. Thanks for the few of you who have gathered with me here as we continue to test out and move towards getting uh, a group of us in here to be able to celebrate and worship together as uh, we believe God has intended to continue to pray for that. And uh, we're excited to see that happen hopefully in the next few weeks here. Uh, we're going to come to this time in our service now. We'll look at a passage from God's Word. We'll talk about what it means, why it matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, a Bible app, whatever it is, would you turn to our passage here today in Ephesians 6? And now we're heading into the beginning of verse 17. Um, as we've done each week, we're going to start back in verse 10 to give us that context, but that's where we'll camp out today. So Paul writes this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and now here's our place today, and take the helmet of salvation. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us quickly, and then we'll dive into this passage. Uh, Spirit of God, we praise you for this word that you've given to us, that it is a living word because it was inspired by you, and it is filled up by you as, as you speak these words over us and accomplish the purpose in us, whatever that is today, for which you've sent it out. Many of us are weary and burdened and uh, carried uh, in this wave of so much uh, strife and chaos and pandemic and all these things that are weighing on us. God, would your word today be a comfort? Would it be an encouragement? Would it be a true protection and covering for us? Accomplish that, I pray, in each one of us. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Amen. Well, those of you who know me at all know I'm a little bit of a history buff. I kind of love history. If you follow history at all, particularly if you followed uh, military victories in the past. One of the common threads I think you see throughout in, in many of these cases from kings, from Fuhrers, from presidents and generals and, and revolutionary leaders is in order to secure victory in the battle, these leaders understood that not only do you need to gain control over enemy territory through just sheer military force, soldiers, troops, firepower, all this kind of stuff, it was also important to seek to gain control over the mind of your enemy through intimidation, through misinformation, through all kinds of various forms of propaganda in order to cause them to wane in their confidence and eventually lose their will to fight in the battle altogether. Uh, some examples of this that we might have, you might know about through history, for instance, in the Roman Empire, uh, seen in the lining of the king's highway into Rome with 6,000 crucified slaves who had taken part in the rebellion under Spartacus. He, he lined the highway with 6,000 crucified 
people, imagine the scene of this walking by, intended not just to punish the traitors, but also to send a very clear, intimidating message to anyone who might want to participate in any kind of rebellion in the future. This is what awaits all who defy the power of Rome. Uh, More recent history, for instance, radio broadcasts from Germany and Japan during the Second World War, uh, Axis Sally, Tokyo Rose, these were radio broadcasts uh, sent to Allied troops in order to demoralize them in their fighting. It it would have all these false reports about victories for the Nazis, uh, battles that they had supposedly won, things that they had taken which they hadn't, and apparently also these Fictional narratives and stories that would be told about unfaithful spouses and girlfriends back home, all just meant to demoralize the soldiers so they would just give up the fight. Or maybe a very recent example, if those of you who are fans of MMA and UFC might be familiar with the distinctive fighting technique of someone like Habib Nurmagomedov, who, alongside masterful striking and grappling ability, one of his distinctive Techniques in fighting was to talk to his opponent all through the fight, saying things to them like, you have to stop fighting now. You have to give up. I deserve to win. You have to stop fighting now. Psychological warfare, writes Robert Longley, is the planned tactical use of propaganda, threats, and other non-combat techniques to mislead, to intimidate, to demoralize or otherwise influence the thinking or behavior of the enemy as a non-lethal effort to capture the hearts and minds, psychological warfare typically employs propaganda to influence the values, beliefs, emotions, reasoning, motives, or behavior of its targets. Well, if you haven't been with us, we've been looking in this last little while over the various pieces of armor of God listed in Ephesians 6. Uh, Following the Apostle Paul's Revelation there in verse 12 of chapter 6 about this spiritual battle raging all around us constantly between the devil and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places and God's redeemed people, the church. God has given us his own strength with which to fight, Paul tells us, and stand firm in this otherwise unwinnable battle, as well as, as we've been learning, his own armor. And so far, as we've sought to understand what each piece of the armor is and how we take it up and make use of it in this battle, we've covered the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of gospel readiness, and then last Sunday, the shield of faith. What we're going to look at today now, this next piece of armor, is the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation, and just as we've seen with each of the pieces of armor, Paul is using the physical armor of a Roman soldier as a metaphor to help his readers visualize how each piece of armor protects God's people in a spiritual sense. In this case, comparing the helmet worn by a Roman soldier in battle to protect their head with the protection our salvation offers us against the attacks of the evil one. The implication here probably fairly obviously being that, uh, remember, just as the shield of faith protects our whole person against the flaming darts of the evil one, uh, the, the breastplate of righteousness protects our heart and our emotions. Now here, the helmet of salvation is intended to protect our minds, to protect our, our thinking and our reasoning and from attack. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, put it this way, says the spiritual application of the helmet is obvious. The apostle is drawing attention to the head, to the mind, the brain, the understanding, the thinking of a Christian. 
end quote, which as I just mentioned, this considering the powerful influence of something like psychological warfare in battle, it mean, this is a means of attack that is just as dangerous, uh, just as devastating as sheer military force and firepower coming against us, and means that it's just as important that we defend against this form of attack, and that's why we've been equipped in this way as well. And so Similar to what we did last week, I want to spend just a few minutes looking back historically at the helmet in history and, and talking about the confidence of a helmet, but then I want to spend the rest of our time together looking at the spiritual application of the helmet, talking about our confidence in salvation. So, the confidence of a helmet, our confidence in salvation. So if you close your Bibles, Bible app, whatever it is, would you open them with me again to this passage, Ephesians 6 verse 17 follow along with me as we look at this next piece of armor and talk about how now the helmet of salvation can enable us to stand firm in this battle okay so let's look first of all at the confidence of a helmet confidence of a helmet so if you look back historically at the helmet of a roman soldier in latin the galea what began as nothing more than a leather head covering to start with eventually developed into this hard iron or bronze helmet to protect the head from club attacks, from sword attacks, all kinds of these heavy blows to the head. It had uh, flaps on the side to protect the ears and an extension on the back that protected the neck. You wore uh, a felt cap or linen strips underneath it to support the weight of this on your head. And as I tried to look into this, apparently the reason for those crests or, or plumes on top of the helmet was sometimes to indicate rank, but for the most part, was meant to just actually make the soldier look taller, more intimidating. But here's the thing. If you've ever watched, or particularly if you've ever played a sport in which uh, uh, other people or things are flying at high velocity towards your head, you already understand the importance uh, and the confidence that comes from this piece of armor when you're wearing it. Um, like in sports, for instance, a helmet is the thing that enables a batter in baseball, a goalie in hockey to stand in front of hard objects flying at them at 90 plus miles an hour and not jump out of the way. Just stand there and, and, and wait for it to come. Um, it gives them a, a confidence to do this. Um, as a rugby player growing up, I remember getting in all kinds of interesting debates with football players uh, about whose sport was more dangerous and whose was you know, tougher and in the end, I would usually just be like, dude, of course you can throw your body full force at someone else with that big helmet on. Lose the helmet and the pads, and then we'll see what a tackle actually feels like. They didn't usually like that. But anyway, the point is, we all understand uh, the, the head, the, the brain is an incredibly vulnerable target, and that uh, damage to the head can either knock you out of the game or knock you out for good. And so we, we need to protect it. This is a part of us that needs to be protected. And yet, whether you're standing on a football field or, or flying down a hill at high speeds on a bike, uh, wearing a helmet suddenly now gives you confidence to be able to participate in activities and, and actions that otherwise you would never have felt safe doing. It gives you the confidence to enter into and, and do these dangerous things. And before we understand anything else about how Paul is going to apply this spiritual, uh, this helmet in a spiritual sense. I think the point that he's making here, first of all, and, and just generally speaking, is that God has provided protection for his people with this piece of armor from those various head injuries, either debilitating or fatal. But more than that, listen, 
He's provided a way as this battle is raging all around us, not just to be protected, but to have that same confidence as we enter into the battle as we have when you're wearing a a helmet in any other kind of situation where it's required. He wants us to have that confidence to enter into the battle. And so that's why he's given us this piece of protection to wear. But again, as with all the pieces of armor, Paul's just using the physical piece as a, as a metaphor to describe the spiritual reality. So as we've already been talking about now, in the same way that a helmet protects your head in battle, a physical helmet, now Paul says salvation. Our salvation is the thing that protects our heads, specifically our mind and our thinking, in the, in the midst of a spiritual battle. So having understood now the confidence that a helmet is intended to bring us, let's look now at our confidence in salvation. Our confidence in salvation. So if you look again at verse 17, beginning of verse 17, Paul says there, take and take the helmet of salvation. Again, each time there's a a command to take this thing and and use it. It's there, but not just available. We need to take it up and use it. And having understood now how a physical helmet protects us, we now need to understand two things to apply it spiritually. First of all, what does Paul mean by salvation? And then secondly, how does our salvation protect us against the attacks of the evil one, against our minds and our thinking in particular? Great questions. Glad you asked. Well, the first question, if you've been in church for a while, what what does Paul mean by salvation? It might seem like a question with a pretty self-evident answer, like we know what salvation is. That's kind of why we're here. We think we've been saved and we're we know that. Like salvation, you might remind yourself, is, is the result of Jesus' death and resurrection, where by faith my, the, the debt for all my sin is paid in full and I'm freed from slavery to sin. And, 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 and that's right. Absolutely, you're right. Praise God for that. that. That is what our salvation is. And yet, the problem with that is that as you read through the New Testament, you come to see that that word salvation is actually described and presented to us in three different ways. Three different uh, senses or, or tenses, if you will. So, uh, if you remember back in Ephesians chapter 2, when we were back there, Paul says, by grace you have been saved. It's a completed action in the past. Done. Similarly, Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we think, good, yes, right, salvation, done. I have been saved. There's no condemnation for me now. Great, complete. But then, <laughs> as you... Reading through your Bible, you come across something like Philippians 2, where Paul says, we are to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Like, okay, or, or Romans 5, where Paul says, if we've been reconciled to the Father through his death, how much more will we be saved by his life? And now suddenly we're confused. We're like, wait a minute, will be saved? Work out myself? Like, I thought I already was saved. How is this? How's this working? And then, but then before we even have time to, to deal with that confusion, then we come now all of a sudden to Romans 13, where Paul writes, The hour has come for you to wake up from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. What? Or again, Romans 8, after describing the, the groaning of all creation as we long for, for sin's curse to be taken away, and he says, And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We're waiting for that? And now we're really confused. <laughs> now we're just like, okay, so am I saved right now? Is this, what do we, 
What's going on? Well, in his work on this passage uh, here in Ephesians 6, that, that our, our passage today in Ephesians 6, Tim Keller helped bring some helpful clarity. And what would a message be without a Tim Keller quote anyway? Where he's talking about the way the Bible describes our salvation. And he says this, quote, There's a sense in which we have been saved. There's a sense in which we are being saved. And there's a sense in which we have yet to be saved. And the Bible says every Christian stands in the middle of all three tenses of their salvation. End quote. So, so the past completed tense of your salvation has to do with your having been saved from the penalty of sin. When, when Christ's perfect righteousness, you remember, is credited to your account and all your sins, past, present, and future, are credited to his account. That's 2 Corinthians 5.21. That's that great exchange, and that happens the moment you put your faith in Jesus. Done. We are saved from the penalty of sin. But then, now the present tense of our salvation has to do, however, with our being delivered from the power of sin. As God, by His Spirit, works in us to conform us and shape us more and more daily into the image of Christ. Nobody looks at Jesus and says, yeah, I look like that right now. We all know there's more work to do. And then there's a future tense where where salvation has to do with looking ahead to that time when the presence of sin will be saved from. Where where Jesus returns, heaven and earth are, are united again, and we are at last made like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. So, All three of those tenses of our salvation are right. All three are are true, and they're seen in the Bible. And as Keller rightly concludes, unless you understand and accept that reality, that all three of them are true and and happening at the same time, you won't understand either the beauty of your salvation or what's happening to you at any given moment in your life as you follow Jesus. You're going to be confused by that if you don't understand all three are true. But when you take all of that now and try to pack it back into the six verses of our passage in Ephesians 6, a lot of us, I think, are, are looking for a Tylenol and a simple answer of just like, just tell me what it is, okay? Okay, which tense is he talking about? Just, just tell me. Uh, past, present, or future, which one is it? Well, there's good evidence to suggest actually that Paul is referring to the past tense because that's the tense of our salvation that he uses most frequently throughout his letter to the Ephesians. And yet, when we're trying to understand, okay, which, which understanding of our salvation is going to be most helpful for me fighting in the battle, which one am I supposed to focus on? I think the answer to that question is actually found in answering this question. Which understanding of your salvation is it that you find helps you most to stand against the schemes of the devil? Which one is it for you? Is it reminding yourself of the completed, justifying work of Christ for you in the past that enables you to stand firm in the battle? Then put on that protection daily. Is it the present, saving work of the Spirit making you daily look more and more like Jesus that helps you to stand firm under the attacks of the enemy? Then put on that protection. Is it the future hope of final redemption? When when the presence of sin in you and in the world will be removed entirely and that enables you to stand firm in the the battle, then put on that type of protection. Put it on daily. As John Stott rightly summarizes, quote, whether our helmet is that measure of salvation which we have already received or the confident expectation of a full salvation on the last day, there's no doubt that God's saving power is our only defense against the enemy of our souls. So all three tenses, past, present, and future, they're all true. And so I think 
Stott's point, I think Paul's point, certainly my point right now is that we should spend far less time worrying about understanding which tense of the salvation we should focus on and focus simply on God's saving power. Focus on his saving power and whatever understanding of his saving work in your life it most inspires you, most encourages you and enables you to stand firm in the battle. Once you find that, cling to it. Maybe it'll switch, but when you find that understanding, cling to it and hang on to it and it will enable you to stand firm. Okay, so there, that's what salvation is. Now we need to understand, okay, how does understanding that help us to stand firm against the attacks of the enemy against our mind and our thinking? Well, I think the, the answer, first of all, is to acknowledge and to really agree with Paul that our minds and our thinking, that that is actually one of the enemy's primary areas of attack, to not like, pretend that he doesn't also employ psychological warfare. And remembering, right, like in, in these battles from history we've seen, it's not just physical warfare. It's not just arrows and soldiers and, and bombs. It's also the, the battle for the mind, the use of psychological warfare. Again, the planned tactical use of propaganda, threats, and intimidation. It's really essentially weaponized information used to capture the hearts and minds of the enemy. And to remember, in this scenario that we're talking about, uh, we're the enemy. We're the, we're the ones that, that the evil one is seeking to destroy and attack with, with this form of, of attack against our minds. That, that, that we as the church are the ones who experience both the barrage of flaming arrows like Job but also the planned tactical use of propaganda like Eve in the Garden of Eden, the combination of which together is intended to either strike you down or cause you to be so confused, so demoralized in the fight that you end up wanting to just give up and walk away and, and, and step out of the battle altogether. And we talked about some of this already back when we looked at uh, the reality of the battle that we're involved in, as, when, like, as well as when we talked about uh, the belt of truth. We, we talked about some of this already, but I think it's worth just a quick review to remind ourselves, particularly with this context of the helmet, to, to remind ourselves again, first of all, that one part of the psychological warfare of the enemy that we just see again and so prevalent in this modern 2020 Western world is that the, the, it's a disinformation campaign. That the enemy's, one of his prime ways of attack is to make thinking of his presence as being an actual thing in the world to sound ridiculous. You believe in a real devil? Some guy in a red suit running around like that's what you believe? To make his work seem so preposterous, like belief in unicorns and leprechauns, that we don't even give attention to the fact that his presence is real and he actually is fighting us. Another part of his psychological warfare, again, is exemplified, I think, really well in the temptation of Eve that we see in the Garden of Eden, chapter 3 of Genesis, because there you have a prime example of Satan giving the full force of his attack to the mind and not the flesh. He, he's, he's confusing Eve with half-truths and then just outright lies. He's, he's seeking to, to dig into her uh, selfish desires for, for power and knowledge and just wearing her down. Till at last, she gives up and gives in in the fight. I mean, this is textbook psychological warfare. We're just watching it played out. And when you look around at the world that we're living in today, and in many cases, even within the church, I think what you see is that this attack of the evil one against our minds and against our thinking with this sustained propaganda campaign has been horrendously effective 
and successful. Like it's working. It's totally working. You, you see it in the chaos and confusion and, and, and bitter disagreement around God's design for things like sexuality and marriage. You see it in the unapologetic and, uh, uh, oppression and subjugation of people strictly because of their, their gender or their skin color. You see it in a church divided between a religious right that prizes legislative morality over compassion and, and true heart conversion and a liberal left that prizes a, a kingdom of man over the, the narrow path that leads to life and the truth that truly sets captive free. It, it's a picture, honestly, when I think about it, that looks like that battle scene near the end of Avengers Endgame when, when everyone's getting pounded and, and every, the, the victory in the battle seems all but lost. Like that's, that's what it seems like as you look at it. And then on top of that, on top of seeing that and experiencing that devastating reality, you have the bullying Courage evaporating voice of the enemy consistently in your ears saying, you need to give up now. Just give up. There's no point in fighting anymore. The battle is lost. Victory is inevitable as he continues to rain down blow after punishing blow on your head. Like, do you see that? When you look around at our world today and, and just in your own life, do you see that reality going on right now? Can you see beneath the surface that that's happening? Do, do you even recognize anymore that we've been deceived? Or like the Truman Show, do you just kind of accept this reality right now and say, well, this is just the way things are? Well, I'll tell you what, when you do see it, when you're, give, when you're given the eyes of faith to see the sustained psychological warfare that so many of us have given into the curtain is pulled back and this reality is revealed all of a sudden you see the desperate constant need for the helmet of salvation in order to ever stand firm in this fight because what our enemy would have us believe today is things that like, just like the loudest most popular opinions of the day that's what's true that's what he would have us believe he would have us believe that we've been betrayed by god that he doesn't have our best interests in mind that, that we've been abandoned by him because of some failure in our life. To believe, listen, the battle's endless. I'm never going to stop coming. It's just unwinnable. You should just give up and give in. That's what he would have us believe. And yet, in turning again and again to that blessed confidence of our salvation, I have been saved. I will be saved and I am presently being saved by the blood of Jesus shed on the cross for my sin. We, we take hold in doing that of Christ's victory in the battle that was already accomplished over the rulers and the authorities and the cosmic powers and the spiritual forces of evil in the heaven, heavenly places through his death and resurrection. His victory is already being accomplished for us. And we find when we take hold of that, the protection once again, that the helmet was intended to provide us as he guards our hearts and minds as he promises in Christ Jesus with this helmet and protection. There's actually, a, uh, if you look back at, in the Psalms, there's actually a really powerful and, and cool kind of depiction of what this looks like, what it looks like to put on the helmet of salvation in the midst of the enemy's attacks against our mind. Do you see it in Psalm 73? And in closing, all I want to do is just actually read through this and just see if you can't notice both the psychological warfare of the enemy as well as the sure protection of the helmet of salvation when we put it on. Psalmist writes this, 
Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are, and they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness, and their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Lofty, loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back from them and find no fault in them. They say, how can God know? Is there any knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. Now listen, verse 13, all in vain. I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I will have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Listen, verse 17, until I went to the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them on slippery places. You make them fall and ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away and utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord. When you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Do you hear it? Did you see the, the transition from the, the powerful influence of the enemy where he felt like it seemed like re- godless rebellion was superior and, and his faithful obedience was just fruitless and foolish to the place where then all of a sudden it's almost like you can see him putting the helmet on as he's talking and the protection and the, the effect it immediately has on his thinking as the enemy's propaganda is exposed and, and, and the salvation, the, the connection he has to God as a saved, adopted child of his begins to cover him and shield him from these attacks against his mind. That's what it looks like. That's what it looks like in real time to put on the helmet. I, I, and I don't know any serious follower of Jesus, honestly, who hasn't felt exactly like the psalmist at times where we're struggling to follow Jesus and, and put that right foot forward and we're looking around and it seems like everyone else is just party town, not a care in the world, and we're like, is this even worth it? <clears throat> What's the point of continuing on? But when we are willing to do this, when we are willing to take the protection that the helmet provides for us when we put it on and we see the confidence we experience again the confidence of what God has done what he will do and what he is presently doing in us through our salvation it allows us to continue to stand firm in the battle and all the lies the disinformation the propaganda of the enemy that comes at us daily is revealed for what it truly is that's the benefit that's the protection of this helmet maybe maybe you're hearing this all right now 
and, and salvation and, and the, the confidence that it gives us to stand firm against life's battles is something that you know you haven't personally experienced yet in your life, not yourself. If that's where you're at, my encouragement to you would be to explore what it means to enter into a relationship with Jesus. I'd love to talk with you about that this week. I know, and if you know someone who is in that relationship, I, I know they'd love to talk with you about entering into a relationship with Jesus because that's where this source of salvation comes from. He is the source of our salvation. He is the source of our strength that enables us to stand firm in the midst of the battle. Not with pride or arrogance, as though now we're these tough guys or something, but with this humble confidence that no matter what, no matter what the attacks are, he's got me. He's got his hold on me and he won't let go. But if you're hearing this as someone who would say, no, I do, I do have a saving relationship with Jesus, but I feel like I'm getting pounded right now. I'm getting pummeled in this battle. My question to you is, are you taking up the helmet day by day and putting it on? Are you allowing it both to protect you as well as to continually shape you? And here's what I mean by that, because one of the things I see over and over again as I talk to people who would check the follower of Jesus box on the census is that we've got a great understanding of our salvation in the past. We're pretty good on our salvation in the future tense, like what God's going to do one day when he returns. But a lot of us are not strong. We are not great at our understanding of the way that we are daily being saved. We don't, we, we don't cling to and hold on to that understanding of the part of our salvation, that, that saving relationship with Jesus, where we, we, we recognize that in order to make us look more like Jesus, we're, we're taken through all kinds of different challenges and, and, and trials and, and different people and circumstances, joys and sorrows, all kinds of things to make us look more like Jesus. But when we don't understand that present tense, we can just become discouraged and debilitated in the midst of that because we don't understand, no, this is part of the present saving work of God to make me look more like him. So if that's where you're at today, my encouragement to you, take up that helmet of salvation today and every day. Remind yourself of the victory that was already won for you in Jesus and remember the fact that that victory that has a past and a future element also has a present element, that you can have victory today over the struggles because of God's hold on you no matter what. Because our failure to do that, our failure to put on that helmet day by day, not only inhibits our growth, it also opens us up once again to a whole new propaganda campaign from the enemy who's going to seek to try to get in there and say, you see God's abandoned you. You see you're not worth it. You see all, all those attacks on our mind are going to come again. But listen, God has given you the means by which to protect yourself. Take it up. Take up that protection for your mind and put it on today and every day. Take up those means once again and experience once again the confidence that God intended to provide for you to be able to stand firm in the battle in Him. Amen.